0: Hi there and welcome to another episode of the Escape podcast. I'm Jason Jenner and this week I'm talking to Will Cohen, CEO, founder and exec producer at Milk Visual Effects. Will talks about founding Milk in 2013, their adventures with Doctor Who, changes in the VFX industry across the last seven years, and how winning an Oscar affects your business. I had lots of fun talking to Will, so I hope you enjoy this one. Hi Will, welcome to
1: the podcast. Hi, Jason. It's a pleasure to join you for it.
0: Thanks for coming. Um, okay, let's, uh, I think it'd be really interesting to just kick off with um, a little bit of milk history, really, because you guys have got quite an interesting origin story in terms of you know your background and where you came from and, and, and where you are today. If you give us a bit of a positive history on that, it'd be yeah. a
1: good place to start, I think. So we started milk in June um, of 2013, Um, the co-founders and we had been working together the core team for about a decade at the mill uh, doing film and tv and um, the opportunity and the stars came into alignment for us to start our own studio Um, and the mill wanted to close our department Uh, and it was all very friendly and we managed to take over our premises um, and we had three months to start a business and close a business. Uh, and we started um, and very quickly we knew there was a business in 2013 worth fighting for and keeping everyone working together. We had this very large sense that we weren't done working together. Uh, at the time certainly that's <laughs> for now we've probably done working together 10 times over no I don't mean that at all. Um, at the time we really you know we really didn't want to lose that team spirit we had and we, we felt we had a lot left to prove as a team together yeah. so um yeah we managed to get our first jobs and raise some money and and self-fund a lot of it and get and get going
0: so are you able to say why um, the mill were thinking about closing down that film department? Was that a, a financial decision on their part?
1: I think, you know, the mill has changed hands since then. Most people that I worked with are no longer working there. And um, the uh, truth, the situation is the mill was a private equity funded business with a growth plan. Um, and we, you know, had changed its plan Uh, to focus solely on commercials globally. Right. Which which it remains doing to this day, right? Yeah, Yeah. and just, we were the one, we were a rogue TV and film department, if you like, Mm. working in a different building on our own Um, and doing some nice work. Occasionally animators would come from us to go work in commercials and a bit of vice versa, but uh, it wasn't a department that was replicated in the other mill offices around the world. So at that time... So So there's a bit of an outlier then, uh, as far as the mill were concerned. (laughs) uh, It was a very tricky context, the visual effects industry in 2013. In in the autumn of 2012, September, I think it was, Digital Domain had gone into Chapter 11 in the US. Yeah. Uh, And in February of 2013, um, Rhythm and Hues had won an Oscar famously for Life of Pi and gone out of business two weeks before. Yes, won an Oscar whilst going bankrupt, yeah. Yeah. So that was the yeah. context, I think um, big finances were very nervous of the film business and the visual effects film industry at that particular time, as uh, it was. You know, there were a bit of tumbleweeds blowing uh, around uh, the West End during that period, as I remember. So I think perfectly fair enough. We, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. It's a cliche because it's true. Um, um, we had certain contracts that we were heading towards that we hadn't signed, and uh, we put a bit of R and D in. Um, and we felt we would begin to get enough jobs, and that you know it was a gamble against when the industry would pick up, which happens, uh, you know, <laughs> on a cycle. Yeah. Every few years. So.
0: And was um, I mean, I think it's probably not fair to to review that period without mentioning Doctor Who, is it? I think it wasn't that central to your kind of um,
1: breakaway plans. Um, yes, I mean we had we were the team who who had brought Doctor Who back in two thousand and four. We started working on it. Um, and the first episode of the first series went out in 2005 Easter weekend.
0: Yeah,
1: um, there were huge billboards of Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper everywhere. I remember being in Yorkshire actually. There was a huge billboard over Ilkley Moor, um, and we thought I'd never been involved in a TV program that had such a big marketing buzz. But then Doctor Who is so much more than a TV program. It's uh, uh, woven into the fabric of British life. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, a heritage it's show. Isn't it? Yeah, it's an event. It's not really a TV series. So it was, it was completely incredible to be part of the, uh, to be collaborating with Russell T Davis, Julie Gardner, Phil Collinson, um, all the people involved in bringing it back. It was a really magical few years. Very difficult. Um, you know, I dare say we got a bit better at it as time went on as well. No one had ever tried anything like it in terms of visual effect at the end of the show, I can so wax on. You'll have to tell me to stop, Jason, because I've got so many dogs in anecdotes. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> um, it was a really, really big part of all of our lives. We thought we were coming together to do it once mm. and that we would never do it again. And so we had a crew based of, you know, seasoned film, visual effects people who'd come off Batman and things like that. And no one had ever attempted to do that level of ambition with that little time and that little money. It was very, very underfunded that first series uh, as we all were finding our feet. And I think we thought we'll do this obscure British show we all care about once, and then we'll all go back and carry on with whatever it is we were doing. And I think on the day after the series went out, I was walking down by the River Thames um, and all I could hear was people talking about it as they were walking past me. It was really bizarre. And then I went for lunch in a pub and the next table were talking about it. And it seemed that everybody was talking about this phenomenon. Um, and we put our heart and our souls and we sweated uh, blood to put into that series. And when I look back on it, uh, some of the things we were quite successful at, some of the things we fell short of. And I think Russell T. Davis has been very polite over the years um, about some of the work we delivered for him. <laughs> it was a very big uh, learning experience. And in some respects, you know, everyone involved with that show were pioneering what you come to expect a sort of modern high end television, really. Yeah, um, we were sort of laughing about the wobbly set aspect of Doctor Who, which is an unfair, um, an unfair association, I think, with um, with the brand. Well, yeah, I mean, although you know, you, you there's, there's quite an
0: affection for that isn't there in terms of people that are young enough to remember much earlier iterations of Doctor Who have that wobbly set, you know, affection for it, and I don't see why there's any reason that the same. Affection shouldn't be held for earlier visual effects in terms
1: of yeah. I mean, the quality some of DNA classic Doctor Who, to call it by the correct terminology, the classic Doctor Who, uh, is some of the best television ever made. Um, Tom Baker in Genesis of the Daleks. Um, I was going to say I'm a Tom Baker
0: man. Is that because we're the same age? Do you think? Roughly? I think so. Tom yeah. Baker. Yeah, I'm a bit too young for John Pertwee. Who, yeah, John I, I Pertwee, know. He's... I remember
1: uh, yeah. we used to do a talk about Doctor Who with visual effects, and we had this wonderful scene of John Pertwee driving his yellow car, um, and uh, this this enormous fly that was BBC visual effects at their height of their 1960s prowess. Uh, <laughs> or, uh, 1960s prowess killer fly coming to take John Pertwee out with some very crude chroma key and even then um, even then it's something charming about the whole thing uh, Absolutely yeah absolutely um, and, you know, we, all, we all grew up with that and it, it, it's formed so many of our experiences The uh, some of the people that were working on it were purely there in the industry because of Doctor Who yeah. and their love of it and it spawned some fantastic writing, talent creativity over the years And I think it's not really stopped doing that. So some of that legacy is definitely there. I know um, Russell was the tour de force behind bringing it back. And Julie was passionate about it. And um, I think they were incredibly nervous and brave to take it on. And I I remember doing a talk with Julie the summer after Doctor Who had finished airing its first series in front of some media people at Promax Festival or some such. Um, not only did she—I uh, never forget—she asked me. We, we we discussed. She hadn't prepared anything, Julie. She had a chat with me in the taxi on the way to the venue and said, oh, "I'm thinking of talking about this, this, and this." She wrote five points down on the back of her hand and talked 45 minutes, incredibly eloquently, without pausing or repetition. And I thought, "Wow, what an amazing exercise in public speaking that is!" Yeah, that was impressive. in the palm of her hand. Yeah. Uh, whereas I'd written an essay and got up and read it out. Some visuals. <laughs> yeah. to <laughs> just have the visuals. What's telling with people in public? It's quite an easy thing to, to, to do. But I remember her saying that the, the challenge of bringing back Doctor Who from her perspective. This is in two thousand and five. Looking back on the year or two that had, you know gone by, and that she said her biggest challenge was was there an audience for something, you know. The marketing of it was not there an audience still there for a family audience on a Saturday night watching a television drama to all intents and purposes for grandma and her children and the children of the children would they sit together on the sofa and watch a drama on a Saturday night while the teenagers ironing the shirt ready to go out and, and it's all going off in the house they were the science terrible. fiction science fiction drama as well really it had become yeah. very unpopular science fiction I mean today yeah. you can't you can't move for science fiction it's very popular Mm. again but in those days uh there's been a lot of television you know if you had a site partly because you couldn't necessarily do science fiction justice with Mm. budgets compared to what was going on in the movies and despite the fact we were using the same tools and the same people there's a gulf of funding that used to be there for the streaming wars and the content things began you know uh there's a gulf of, of of difference in quality and time and effort and knowledge and the tools weren't quite the same as well at the beginning. So I think um, science fiction was a very difficult prior to Doctor Who to, to, to put on television. And this fear of, would there be an audience for something my parents liked watching? Yeah. You know, but they just run a mile? And I think if that is one of the bravest decisions ever taken. And then she said in her talk, um, how do you deliver the production values that people would expect Harry Potter level of production value on a BBC show and let's be honest at that time it was the BBC self-funding it Um, later it would go on to become the biggest selling BBC international show along with Top Gear those were the two huge successes and the first year we did Doctor Who strictly came back so it was a big bumper Saturday nights were beginning to shape up for a decade actually which is very either very impressive what you're doing or no one comes along with anything better in a decade depending on your viewpoint on on repeating brands and success and you know it was my first experience of a tv show being treated as a brand they had a brand manager who was a terrific guy who managed doctor who and, and russell wasn't just writing and the chief writer and the showrunner and approving every aspect of the show and i think that's a lot of people's real first experience in the uk of having an american style showrunner you know run across I'm going to use the word season I think we were still yeah. calling them series at the time but yeah you could have said season one of Doctor Who that's entrenched um, in our language now actually isn't it for, because of Netflix it is and, a big you know, shift and, it, it, a big yeah. shift in your mindset and that's my first experience of working for a brand and there were so much more demands placed on you just you know come on we're in charge of the visual effects and we're all I'm on like Blue Peter being interviewed about it, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was really weird um, and a real privilege. Honestly, I, I hate using the word privilege. It's used by everybody who ever did any work ever. I'm proud and I'm privileged, but I am proud and privileged of the work that we all did yeah. on Doctor um, Who. We we're, we were so much in love with it. We were at work 20 hours a day trying to make it as good as we can. And, you know, But we had such a lovely time working with Russell and Julie and all the other heads of department. Um Neil Gorton uh, building plastic creatures. We had uh, Ed Thomas, the production designer. It, it really was a special time. And, and I'm right in
0: thinking that you were you were still doing Doctor Who as you broke away to Four Milk, weren't you? That was one of the one of the drivers, yeah. one of the projects that carried you through into the new business. I, I'm right about um,
1: that. It right? did. That was quite controversial, actually. It was quite controversial, right? Um, How so? Because there was a lot of. For some reason, visual effects causes politics. I think it's the size of the budgets involved. There was politics about it, BBC Wales thing being done in England. Mm. There was politics about uh, should we have to retender for it um, because other people wanted to work on it. I think you you to realised there's a passion out there for it and people didn't just want to work on it because it was a big job. They wanted to work on it. So, you know, be careful when you upset a bunch of geeks who work in visual effects, you know can be can be very difficult so and also politics and power and institutions and big bureaucracies and broadcasters who, who are these people who've let us down who want to start a business and carry it on uh, so that was quite interesting it wasn't plain sailing as I remember as I remember some of the acid indigestion problems that I've suffered as a adult in charge of a business his own business <laughs> started start to come up so you know it's, it's an interesting uh, they had have, they have their there. origins at that point. <laughs> You know, it's yeah, it wasn't that plain. set because we had we were a few months away from filming there, uh, as the mill filming their stereoscopic 50th anniversary special, so we're now in the Stephen stereoscopy. Era. Goodness me, I can just remember getting the phone call from Marcus Wilson, I think it was. Um, again, all these people that have taken to the helm of Doctor Who, uh, Stephen Moffat and Marcus Wilson era of making a Brian, the era of working with them was no less fun. And working with Russell and Julian was very different. Um, Matt Smith, Peter Capaldi. We survived quite a few doctors. Yeah, uh, you did. Lot. Yeah. So we, um, we, we clung on for dear life to it. Um, and it's been very good to us. We won a BAFTA for that at the Mill. And we won two BAFTAs for Doctor Who at Mill. Of the three that we managed to win in the first few years. So it's it's very special to me. Uh, when I've watched, I've watched on Dave. Sometimes you catch a David Tennant episode of Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, and I, maybe I'm being really pretentious, so shoot me or edit it out. But <laughs> uh, you can sort of feel the love, because it's a bit cheesy, some of what we did, you know, in terms of visual effects. It was a really hugely ambitious. And Russell was a joy to work with, because he was all over the visual effects in the end. Um, it was a big thorn in everyone's side. I've written this beautiful episode, it can't be achieved yeah how do we achieve that um and there are so many ways to tell a story and in visual effects especially today being a collaborator with people people use the word collaborate all the time normally it doesn't mean uh i'd like to work with you and see what you can bring to the table and let's exchange some ideas and go to a great place um and i think the joyous thing about being in the visual effects industry um and any creative business i think uh is when you get together with people and you genuinely achieve collaboration because then marvellous things can happen so let's talk about milk uh, specifically then in terms of the the makeup of the company
0: when you when you founded the business i mean how many how many people was that what was the size of that business creatively in terms of artists producers various people and and what
1: size is it now in terms of the i'm trying to remember um, what's what's the journey you've been on there in terms of growth We opened with about 40 people and we said we would, you know, full of idealism and we can always do this better. And I think most people who've worked in managing a visual effects studio for someone else, or even in business, probably fantasize about having their own business and the things they would do if they had one. When I have my own studio, it's going to be called Utopia and um, it's going to be cold beer in the fridge all the time. And it's, you know, it's all the things that you dream of that if Heineken were doing visual effects companies. Um, and, yeah, it's kind of a lovely energy uh, when you start a business like that. Against all the odds, we seem to have to move mountains. In fact, when we started, Mill, I remember thinking, what are we doing just starting a visual effects studio? We should be trying to end war globally because it's what we've managed to pull off. <laughs> and it's a bit silly, really, but it was really hard. We had a lot of support um, and a lot of friendship. And I think starting a business like that in a recession is has its huge risks, but it also has huge advantages. Um, we felt a lot of, uh, again, I, f- I feel so pretentious in saying it, but we felt a lot of love from people uh, because it was quite a positive story um, in the difficult time. You know, in visual effects, we took an advert out in Cinefix, um, trying to be vaguely disruptive. I didn't know the word disruptive in 2013. Something that's that <laughs> up, and I don't really like it, but I think we were just trying to make a noise without anything to show visually. And I think we felt that uh, having been surrounded by advertising people, um, that visual effects film and TV people for all their brilliance at storytelling, for all their brilliance creatively, weren't very good at marketing and and posters and adverts and branding and things like that. And so um, branding was key. But my first phone call when we started the company was to escape. And the first phone call was, I'm gonna start a visual effects company, don't know what to do, don't have a head of systems, don't have a pipeline person. (laughs) Help. What do I need to buy? Yeah, what do I need <laughs> to buy? How should we set it up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I remember some of those early early conversations. Yeah, and,
1: you know, loads of you came and sat in a room and we drew drawings and very quickly we hired Dave Goodborn to be the head of systems and we had a Benoit yeah. start with Pipeline and those two helped us set up our studio and grow it technically, the infrastructure, and we had a lot of help. But I think there was a lot of goodwill for a new studio being born in difficult times and out of adversity um and we played up a bit on that in our marketing you know we wanted to be a bit irreverent a bit studenty um and a bit like oh look no, we've got our own business we can be silly a bit or we can put adverts out saying hey everyone it's meant to be fun because it wasn't a fun year the visual yeah. effects industry um and the branding i cannot emphasize that enough the second phone call we made uh, was to a branding agency called someone Mm-hmm. who we'd been doing work with at the mill a guy called simon Manship. we'd been doing some work with them because we were going to have our own breakaway mill film website and not be buried behind advertising become a bit political yeah uh, i was upset that it was three or four clicks till you could find us mm-hmm. um the work we were doing and i think we wanted to stand on our own two feet as millfilm.com so we with the whole mill was going through a rebranding exercise um and we've done a lot of work so he knew us simon and what we were going through and what we stood for and uh from the startup cash if anyone's ever starting up a business um at that particular time just say i'm going to spend quite a section of the money we've used to start the company on branding it um no one quite got it and it was the branding is not your mate designs you a logo for you to put on your business card the branding was quite joined up and grown up and You know, we had a real challenge when we started Milk, which was we had to convey the fact that we were in the industry quite a while. We'd been together for a decade. Um, We weren't a startup in a basement, six of us. There were 40 of us. We had uh, some capital behind us to buy, set up our own pipeline. Um, We were still rendering on the mills, render farm, because we couldn't get set up in time. So they, they were very kind. We did a deal for six months, staying connected. Um, yeah. otherwise we couldn't we're now using some of those proprietary tools we couldn't have done the stereoscopic special of Doctor Who and we had six months to design our infrastructure and get it all set up and you know cut the umbilical cord between the mill and milk yeah um, so it was really yeah I remember really interesting that. but the branding was you know hey how do we say to our clients we're continuing our business not really starting one up the startup was banned as a word and it was all about conveying business continuation, which we hoped we managed to do by the branding
0: part. Yeah, you as you say, you were, a, you, were a, you were a new company and a new identity, but that was really fronting a group of people with considerable experience who'd already been working together for a long period of time and brought with them yeah. considerable um, history and sort of credits uh, background, really. Um, and so having got set up then, um, I mean, my perception today is that you're – you know, you you'll work on a multitude of projects really. I mean you'll you'll work on you know long form episodic and streaming service productions and you'll do features and um what's what's the what's your current view on how how you how how do you go forward from here and what do you do today in terms of identifying projects as as the right fit, you know, as the right size and scope for you? What's what's the what's the ethos behind milk today from that yeah, point of view?
1: It's a great question. I've always been um very upset in creative business, full stop, when someone who's a fantastically talented director is told they're not a comedy director, so they can't direct comedy because they only right. do really serious tragedy, drama, and things like that. I get upset when um, people get pigeonholed and when they're obviously full of creativity. Um, actors, the same. Oh, he's in an action role, but he does straight drama. Why has he gone to the gym all of a sudden and he's all pumped up with his T-shirt off? Mm. And you're like, well, it's probably because someone's paying him $10 million to be in it. But, um, <laughs> and he doesn't have to worry about uh, hitting those dramatic moments, you know. Well, that speaks
0: to, a, that speaks to a, a, a financing business or a studio's, you know, reticence to kind of push the mould, doesn't it? You know, in terms of, they think, well, they've got to serve people the same stuff they've seen before. We, we know that sells. We don't want to do anything new because that's a risk, you know.
1: But you see the business end of it, the show business, business is always the bigger word than show. Yes, yeah. a lot of decisions are made in life, and not just business. In life, by fear, fear of failure, and this is not the friend of creativity. Fear of failure and playing it safe; these are not creating the right environments. I don't know how we ended up on this tangent. Of, this is a good tangent. A I think we'll, we'll, go, we'll go. We'll go with this. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, a lot of a lot of business decisions are made. You know, people making decisions on fear. So why would I take a risk on the drama action director doing a comedy? Because I just want someone who can show me that. I mean, I'm I'm going to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on something. I don't want to take a risk. Yeah, you know. But I would suggest, isn't that really a risk? If you like that guy's work, you think he's got talent, and you've chatted him about the project, mm. not really a risk. But I think so. My my point, long winded, is uh, we always were priding ourselves on doing it because of Doctor Who as well. We had to do creature work, environment work, science fiction spaceships, hard models. We got experience at firing the right skill sets to do all the uh, different uh, aspects of visual effects work um, and at various times in the studio depending on what we've been doing um, we've excelled or pushed one aspect of that but we've never been oh visual effects they do creatures only um, and so we've, we've, we've tried to do everything uh, when we started, we never expected to get much film work because this is the era of come to London, use one of the enormous uh, yeah. monster companies, take one of their visual effects supervisors who supervises whole movies, including other vendors, uh, and let them run the film and supervise other vendors. And That's generally... not been the case, has it? You have done film work. I mean, well, We have. In fact, our first client, when we went from mill to milk was Universal working on 47 Roner. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we worked on it at the mill and then we worked on it, a package of work at Milk. I mm. mean, it was the film that never would never die. Went <laughs> One film, street.
0: two companies. <laughs> Some marriages,
1: you know, began. They got proposed, got married, had children. And it was still being made. Forty seven. <laughs> um, but we worked on a film that shot after it. And the DVD was out in the supermarket when Rodin came out. <laughs> <laughs> and the same crew were on it.
0: Rodin did um, before he said Ronan, did have a very, very long gestatory period, didn't it? I do I remember love that.
1: Got yeah. to work with our friend Christian Mance on it. And Universal were delightful. And it was, it was lovely to get that as our first job that we won as milk. But um, that and Sherlock Series 2, I think, were the first jobs. And Doctor Who, 50th. Um, but we didn't expect it. Part of the business plan, number one, that we wrote over Easter weekend in 2013 was we'll get one work in film, which means there'll be 100 shots at the end of the film. There's a month to release date. They're not going to get there. And one of the visual effects producers of Independent will call you up and say, can you help? And you'll yeah. do some work on a film and you get the poster and you'll put it up and the TV people will like it when they come to your office. Mm-hmm. and we'd all feel good about ourselves because there's a lot of snobbery in the film and tv what well, they used to be that's kind of really disappearing um but our main business was going to be doing episodic drama uh, as a kind of unique specialist in fact dean egg tv department started um a couple of weeks after about the same time as we were opening um so uh there wasn't there began to get more and more competition from 2013 onwards in that area. And not not just because of Doctor Who, but because you could people started to use visual effects more and more uh in television and you know and copy what was going on in the movies. Uh but we yeah every now and again we'd get a package and and try and sell ourselves as doing complex and innovative work because we knew Sometimes people making films just want a group of creative people to concentrate on a tricky aspect of it and let one of the really uh, large, well-resourced companies who can change 400 shots with three weeks to go as part of their pipeline, get on with it. Um, And so, yeah, it was going to be a TV company doing a bit of film. um, And at various points, we've been 50-50, 80-20 in either case. Um, doing a bit of both but we've always started trying to punch above our weight uh, using marketing and branding and pr uh, and trying to let the work speak for itself as well and and to try and make a a mantra out of the different mindset of working in a more atelier like environment of more of one of the to the to the way the production line works in one of the larger companies
0: Am I right in thinking that you had a, another award success with um, speaking about the features work with um, Ex Machina?
1: Yes, that was an evening and a half. So we had this fairy tale year in twenty sixteen where Sarah Bennett, one of our co-founders and um, a brilliant visual effects supervisor and one of the best compositors I've ever had the pleasure of working with, and one of the most delightful people. I'm, I mean, I'm really got a lot of good things to say about Sarah um she uh, won an oscar for you know our collaboration with alex garland and dean egg and all the amazing talented people there uh, andrew the supervisor on 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 ex machina for alex garland um and that was an evening of of i remember it was this february evening and it was really cold and it was raining rather a lot and you've I had two young kids at the time and i was absolutely knackered and sarah was in los angeles and they'd been to BAFTA film, and they'd had a nice night out. And there she was in LA. Um, and I said to my then partner, my wife, oh, man, do you think she'll ever know if I don't go and watch it at the hotel in London where they run this London thing? And she went, <laughs> she finds out you weren't there. She'll never forgive you. Don't be such a lazy ass. Get out of the living room. Go and get your tuxedo on and and and, and go into town. And I remember I drove. I was that, not wanting to drink and... I, I got my tuxedo on. and You thought you'd be driving home. <laughs> and I drove, so at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night in February, a rainy Sunday night, I drove the car into Soho. I had to park at the garage and get some petrol, and I was really pissed off and miserable. <laughs> and I got, it got, it got worse, right? I turned the corner into Soho, and I'm driving, and People people, it's early, 10.30, the pubs, everyone was thrown out of the pubs, and there's a couple shagging in a doorway. And I'm like, this is grim. <laughs> And I get into the hotel and I've missed the best party ever. Everyone was done up to the nines. Everyone was drinking cocktails. And there's miserable soaking wet. Eeyore goes to the bar and says, can I have a large espresso, please? And try to get one. It took two hours to get someone to make me a cup of coffee. And I remember saying to Jenny, who does our marketing and PR, when Jenny was there and we're having a coffee and she's having a drink. And I was saying, there's no way we're going to win. Jenny had prepared this press release because it was her duty to do so before we went for the weekend. And she'd written it in about 30 seconds. Really delighted. That's brilliant. Thanks a lot. And like she just knew we were not, Sarah was not going to win this award. And I'm still with me, two hour espresso, watching it. And I said, Do you, do you think anyone will notice? I'm here. If she asks anyone, I've been here. Do you think anyone will know if I just bug her off? And she was like, Well, you can't bug her off before. It's like 10 minutes to go. It's three in the morning, whatever. Um, <laughs> As we're doing this miserable chat and I'm drinking my coffee being miserable, Sarah wins an Oscar and I dropped my coffee on the floor. Everything was in slow motion. And I said to Jenny, you better go home. We better meet at the office at nine in the morning and get on with it. And Sarah came back after a week and just went, can you make it go away, please? Because we were getting (laughs) phone calls. We are getting phone calls from people who own legging companies going, hi, can we take a picture of Sarah wearing our leggings? Um, And... You know, it was just that nuts, really. Goodness me! So I went home thinking, "Oh, you wow, did." That's, that that might change. How much is that going to change the game for us in terms of how many less driving round LA sessions will I have to do to get people to 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 know our name and all that kind of stuff? And presumably, that um, was the case with where, where feature work was concerned, was it? It was a little bit. There was, it, you know, these things actually don't change your life as much as you think. I think they changed Sarah's life. I hope for the better. It's pretty mm-hmm. mental what happened, you know. It's hard to describe, and I'm only a bystander. I'm sure she could sort of tell you, especially um, as a woman working in the visual effects business. There, there is a, a, an imbalance generally of females to male ratios in visual effects, Well, it's, it's traditionally seen as a very geeky, sweaty male um, I'm Post- making it sound yeah. like a rugby team, and it's so not like a rugby
0: team. <laughs> you, you did a little, but I, you, your, your overall point is right, which is there's a lot more men yeah. than there are women, you know, aren't there? You know.
1: you know, I think, I, you know, I can't talk for Sarah, but I think she, you know, remember having a few conversations with her, and I don't think she wanted to be seen as the beacon of women in the creative industries. I think she just wanted to be taken seriously as Sarah Bennett visual effects supervisor. So I don't think she really wanted to be photographed wearing leggings. Um, no. For a leggings company, and, or, any, um, or anybody's poster child, probably yeah. Just wanted a, a professional. You know, I mean, we did. We did get to go to Buckingham Palace. Sarah, I was very thrilled that she invited me to be her plus one to Buckingham Palace to go and meet Prince Charles and Camilla, along with the BAFTA Great and Good of 50 years of it or something. It was that. That was uh, delightful to be able to do that, um, and I think it was a real trip in terms of once in a lifetime thing for someone um to go through that but it was really helpful to mil um it helped and know it's hard to analyze it you can't really say what it meant just like having an emmy as well but later on that year for sherlock um maybe when people came into the office and they saw all the gleaming trophies in the cabinet they might have thought they were in the right place so it might have helped us it's not a coincidence to think the year afterwards we had our best ever year
0: yeah, that is interesting. I mean, it's um, I mean, it's it's what you hope those things will do for you, right? I mean, in terms of pushing your business and your creative reputation to a, a new a new level. Um, what do you think about? I'm interested, we talked a lot about the sort of wider industry stuff really so far. And I think it's a good moment for me to to ask you a question. I think you'll have quite a good perspective on. So the the sort of rise of the streaming service um, client for you guys in visual effects, you know, Netflix, Amazon Studios, you know, so on. Um, how has that changed the way that you work, uh, both on the creative side and, and the commercial end? And do you think it's
1: sustainable? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. I think the uh, for us as a company, having done TV and film, we sat on the cusp of what streaming services are all about, which is... Um, pushing the envelope of production value and budget uh, to create memorable and unforgettable work. Um, and I think it's uh, we were talking just around the time this all began about what was the blurring of the lines. You know, if Brad Pitt's going to be in a TV show or Plan B, his production company, are going to make a TV series. If Martin Scorsese is going to direct the opening of Boardwalk Empire. If um, Dustin Hoffman's going to be in a TV series about horse racing you know, then then we're in a world we don't really recognise anymore, where that snobbery of TV and film doesn't exist, um, where the very best talent is going to make the very best stories. You know, what a wonderful thing for an actor. Why is Tom Hardy in Peaky Blinders, you know, and Killian and Murphy? Because they get 10 hours of story arc with a character. How, how amazing must that be for them? Um, so I think... Uh, I've always been a fan of television and film. I've never really differentiated um, the finest television and the finest film very different. But I think um, there's still a big difference in terms of size of screen. And I sometimes think, uh, what a shame when films don't get a cinema release. And then now, particularly, there's a lot of films are slated to be premiering on the on the smaller screen, if you like. Yeah. Having said that, the size of people's tellies aren't what we were used to in the 70s. Let's be honest. No, um, there's a, there's probably a level of film where that's still a problem in the sense that I there are some
0: films that, you know, I mean, we, we I was going to ask you about the, the coronavirus pandemic and we'll probably come to that. But obviously, that's kind of what you're alluding to a little there in terms of the change. Yeah, I, mean, I,
1: I went to see a screening of Roma at the cinema for an awards screening. And I was really glad that I had done because it's very arty, black and white. Beautiful looking. Beautiful looking film. But mm. I had to question my own stamina were I at home near my chocolate cupboard and my (laughs) kettle, whether I would have flicked, paused it, gone and made a cup of tea, had a biscuit, come back, thought maybe match of the days on or something. You know, you you have to watch the film when you're in the cinema and you're having the shared experience with 100-odd people or more, um, and it is a different kind of vibe. Um, I agree. I think,
0: um, I mean, I have a slight confession to make there about that very same film. It's, It's not often that... You ask someone a question and they answer in a way that you, you know, you have a direct uh, response to that. But I watched Roma at home, and yeah. um, you know, I am squarely in the you know international film slash art house camp as a consumer, and um, mm-hmm. and I didn't finish it. No, but for for that reason, really, not because it's not good. Or I mean, and I I watched it and thought this is beautiful to look at. Every frame just looks just like they put their whole life and soul into it but I didn't finish it. And I think you're right. As, as a cinema, that wouldn't be the case. I mean, also I went to, you know, the, under the pandemic conditions, films have been pushed back. You know, that's done all told, all told damage to cinema uh, as, a, as a business, as an industry. Um, yeah. But I did go and see Tenet at the cinema, and I I have to say I don't think that's a film that I would ever wanted to have tried to watch at home. Mm. I think. That's I mean, you
1: probably might if you want to try and work out what it was all about. but well, you stopping, need to you pause You, you need to but, you do need to see it again in order to, be able to decipher it. Yeah, I mean, so you, maybe the second time you can watch it at home. Try yeah,
0: and work out no, what that, was going on. that that will absolutely help. I mean, uh, and and it is definitely a film that needs to be seen more than once. But it does it does definitely have a it does definitely it has been created to to be seen in a in a in an auditorium with a screen and, and a
1: sound system. Yeah, I don't think Christopher and, Nolan has a television. I think he he probably just has a screening room in his house. You know, I I. I he's mean, there's a every film chance.
0: Guy. Yeah, I think you know? there's
1: every chance. Um, but
0: um, yeah. But in terms of narrowing, I mean, you you as you say, you you mentioned that point about snobbery between film and TV, and then you 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 circled back to that without yeah, me without me having I, to you know, flag it. You know, and so that 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 gap's been narrowed. But I mean. What does it do to your, you know, pitching on jobs, how you're crewing up, you know, what you're doing commercially? Is there a yeah. difference to you
1: in terms of it's working same, for Netflix? Or? It's the same pipeline for us. Um, mm. and in fact, I think the word pipeline has become more and more interesting over the last few years because actually every job has its own pipeline. It fits into their pipeline, but bespoke uh, tweaks are made um, and people really need to budget the time into their schedules to allow each job to have its pipeline love um because nothing fits exactly all the specs are different and nothing fits exactly through the same pipeline the same way but for us it's a different management of hats depending on who's making the project you know and actually netflix film is slightly different to netflix television um so it's flexibility at all levels from technical pipeline to project management um there is a real narrowing of the gap. In 2017, we did our first project for Skydance, which was backed by Netflix, which was Altered Carbon. And we'd never uh, seen a budget like that for a TV show. Uh, we'd gone head-to-head to try and win it, and we were little minnows against Dean Egg. And I did say to JC, one of my co-founders, we, when we didn't get it, in a way, that might have been the job that, that ended the company. <laughs> Just <laughs> to give. But have, like having having money, you said that. Then we did then we did one episode for them, um, which was really fun. It was like a standalone flashback episode with fire in forests, and um, it was really, really fun to work on. And the two guys responsible were film guys for Netflix that Netflix had hired, uh, along with Skydance, um, and it was their first TV series. Um so, so the two guys that Netflix had hired, it was their first TV series. And um they really understood that, you know what? They wanted us to put more into it ourselves, which is part of the joy of television. They wanted us to work a bit harder creatively. So here is a shuttle. Can you take our loose design and work it up into a finished concept? Well, this is what people who work in the visual effects industry want to do. So, of course, we can. So you, you, they, we worked it up. They liked it. We made it. We got approval at the various times. What they did was just streamline the process and they knew really cleverly how to give the right notes to point you in the right direction to finish the shots rather than try loads of things out to get to that point. So they, the client, visual effects producer and supervisor, really hit, hit the balance themselves perfectly to get great work done on time and on budget rather than try and make a massive old-school feature film for less time and money. And I think working with clients like that is brilliant. Because they 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 got it, and therefore we were able to do what we could in the time and the money. Um, it was really perfect, and I think you know going forwards from there, uh, the impact of people like Netflix has been the conversations change. You know, I don't I don't I don't want to say anything derogatory about Doctor Who and working at the BBC in the first decade of the century, but, no, but the conversation working was on
0: that really working on that probably really helped you put you in good stead to be working in today's market. I would have said.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. Um, From Digi Beta to Baby HD to Full HD to uh, stereoscopic 3D, you know, it's great. But I think the conversation all too often when you have limited budget, um, and it's been expressed to me by various people over the years that maybe they could do with more budget to compete internationally with what people expect. Because towards the end of Stephen Moffat's era, he he cornered me at an awards deal. We'd just done a piece of work that involved a trip to an alien planet. And we had an establishing shot, wide shot, and a couple of mid shots with our focus background and a cut back to two different angles of the wide shot. And a five minute scene, that's just getting away with it. And it's getting away with it five years before that time. And he said to me, we can't get away with that. He said, something has been really troubling me. I said, what is it? Um, He said, we can't get away with this anymore. The world's got too sophisticated. Other people's, you know, now people are seeing more. And we'd have to be at the forefront. So he fought his battles where he needed to fight them and we put some more shots in. And he was absolutely bang on. And I think conversation in an underfunded world with creative work on television or episodic is how do I not do visual effects? That that was all too often the conversation. Got this mm. story, it can't be told. Should be told over 12 shots. We can do it in three. How do we do that? And actually it's not the most... Uh, Sophisticated storytelling, everything, everything go off in three shots, because you've got five story beats to get across. And there's the visual effect shots and there's the live action. And it's you want it to blend in seamlessly. And you you, you know, the conversation in the last few years has been opened up on episodic. It's not a luxury baddie-ass bubble bath of I can do whatever I like, but the conversation is variably more is how do we tell this story, not how can I tell this story for the money. Yes, absolutely. Which is a very freeing thing. Yeah, it's, it's the friend of creativity, isn't it? It I is. Know, and, have um, that is it
0: sustainable?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think there's a good decade of it coming. Right. I think it's longer than a short war. I think Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, Apple, which haven't really got established yet, in my opinion. Um, but are, Yeah, that's just rising it, now, isn't it? Yeah. It's rising up. Yeah. Um, uh, Amazon uh, as well have been there throughout. I, all with their own agenda, all wanting your eyes to watch their stuff and carry their apps on your phone and on your TVs and your smart TVs. Um, I think there'll be more entrance into the market and then at some point there'll be a period of consolidation later on when they all buy each other up and, and meld their platforms and content libraries together uh, and then it might slow down a bit. But um when Jeff Bezos buys everything. <laughs> yeah. It's just, <laughs> just your TV. It's just called Amazon.
0: Yeah. He, he, everything. he, he buys everything and he's employing you to do all the work and you're paying him for all your rendering and just yeah, everything absolutely. is over. Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Alexa. <laughs> I wanna watch um, No <laughs> Time to Die. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let, let's talk about the technology a little bit then, because um, one of the things that's really interesting about talking to you uh, personally and as a studio is, in a way that's not necessarily true of other um, guests that we've had on the podcast, you've kind of done it all, really, in terms of you've had considerable investment in on-premise technology in the traditional way, that is your render farm and your workstations are all you know, in the, in the same building as your artists, and you've done... Posted solutions where you've had portions of that technology offsite at the data center. And you've mm-hmm. also done a considerable amount of cloud rendering on some of your bigger projects. Um, so if this isn't like the most gigantic whopper question of all, you know, uh, unanswerable question, you know, what's the story there? What, what, how do you see it all in terms of what's best? What's the right mix? You know, what are the pitfalls? What are the advantages? I mean, I'm, you'd have a unique insight on that really.
1: Well, it's funny hearing your perception because you make it, you know, uh, I think, So a company's strategy and its plans is based on where it's at and what it wants to achieve at any given time. And that's only changed in the seven years, eight years we've been running Milk. Um, So we had a big plan to go fully cloud migrated back in 2017. We were discussing it because we all recognized the beauty of the concept that was pay as you go. Yeah. Um, The visual effects business has traditionally been a very capitally intensive business. which was one of the barriers to entry in starting a company is, God, I need that much money just to be able to uh, put some images together and move some noughts and ones about. Mm. Um, That's come down over time. And there's a lot more, you know, software became rentable. It became rentable by the day, not just by the three monthly periods, you know, and it really helps certainly small businesses out or businesses become efficient. But sad reality with full cloud migration on any platform is the expense of it today and so I've yeah. done full 360 and I think the across all of my thinking uh, and the thinking of the people when I speak to them around me is a hybrid solutions are always interesting and, you know we talk about the pandemic and what the future is like but I think it will be hybrid between premises and remote working yeah and I think we're hybrid between cloud and uh and on-prem rendering and maybe we'll review that and have gpu rendering join in um I'm certainly Uh, really interested in the power of Unreal, not just because one day it might free us up from one of the big cost issues with visual effects to do with rendering and time issues, but because of its importance in the technical pipeline in itself as another tool. We can get 80% of the way with an environment in days now rather than weeks. So there's a lot of value in being able to show your client, is this what you like? And then either pulling it into, you know, we've had an innovation the last few months, we can now bring uh, Unreal files in and out of other packages.
0: Um, Yeah, so without having to render things over and over again, iteratively is what you mean, and you can do much more. If we need to take something into
1: Maya and render it Arnold on the cloud to get that quality level where it needs to be. We can pull it from Unreal 80% and take it to 100%. Um, So, yeah, hybrid solutions and different tools for different things. To render, you don't really know what your render times are going to be. And do you have the time to optimise your scenes? All of it can be really costly when you're paying uh, a third party to render on their cloud.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that would bear out with my experience in, in sort of scoping technical solutions for, a, for our you know. s- studio partners. You often, you're, you're asking them as much as you can you know, how, how, how long is this render going to take you? How many frames have you got, you know, and building your specs, you know, your configurations on, on the answers to that. But the answer is generally that
1: they're not quite sure. You know, no. And it's great until they have start have doing the a powerful job. baseline to be able to do render tests and render shots and render scenes. And originally we started using the cloud to clear the decks when multiple shows were delivering and competing for the render farm. Um, and in a way we're almost heading back there um and i my plan for the future would be to invest into more on-premises and i say on-premises it could be um hosted at a data center i think we'll be using data centers more in the future to do more uh to have to have more kit there whether it's rack mounted workstations you know i was famously told a couple of years ago oh we'll never buy another workstation um but i would disagree with that now
0: yeah, I think you're right. I think, like I say, I think it's quite interesting and I think people listening might find it interesting to hear a sort of a, a studio that's fairly seasoned in using that technology in different forms to, to, to hear you come back and say that because I think... You know, I've right. spoken
1: to people in some of the really large companies where huge checks have been written on huge blockbusters that have, you know, lost lots of money for companies, you know, and it's not good to lose money in creative business. It's really difficult. And yeah. so um and cost management and having your own render farm still is definitely many of us are coming back to that way of thinking and i think it's really important to also reserve the right to change your mind i think there's another huge mistake being made in life where people are considered weak if they change their mind but actually i think it takes a huge strength of character i don't just mean individually but as a business we said this but actually now we're changing our mind
0: yeah, I agree. I think that's also that. you know that's that you could almost apply that to to society. It doesn't have to be you know visual effects, you know, specific in the sense that you know we've 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 become a society that you know is less sort of dialectic about things. And as you say, why can't you change your mind? To, you know, experience experiences change your opinion, don't they? On well, things I think, that you, know,
1: you do. I watched you know. watched Marcus Rashford OBE. Uh, changed the government's mind about how it felt about, you know, feeding children. I was pleased when the government changed their mind. I thought it showed, you know, it was the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, absolutely.
1: Um, uh, so bringing it back to technology, yeah, um, they're all useful tools for the right time. We've been using the cloud uh, to deliver a feature and a large TV series and two features because there's a lot of rendering going on and we're we're bursting our resources. Yes. To yeah, yeah. delivery dates, but yeah. we, we we try and budget it for it and plan for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the way that having, you know, all your rendering and all your workstations on site and, you know, in your own building is quite cumbersome and difficult to manage from a sort of power and space point of view. It's equally yeah. so that you're know, doing everything in the cloud is really, really costly. So it's probably not it's not all in one way or the other, is it? It's, as you say, no. it's hybrid and it's a it's a good mix. Yeah, and I'll be interested to see how,
1: how GPU rendering fits in uh, on the way to real time rendering.
0: Yeah, that's, that's clearly the next phase, isn't it, in terms of, of, of that tool set. Um, f- fascinating stuff. So, look, let's just um, bring things to a close then. It's been a great conversation so far. Let's talk about the dreaded coronavirus. I mean, everybody that we've yeah. had on the, the podcast has... We've had a chat about that. Um, I know you've got some opinions on this. I mean, where are we? Where are we going as an industry, VFX-wise, and and the remote working that we're all currently you know using? Um, how do you see that shaping up over the next? Well, over how, that's another part of the question. How long is that all going to be in place for? You know, what does it look like to you? What do you think?
1: I think we're all going to have to adapt. I think the coronavirus has sent us spiraling in a different direction. Um, I think. Nothing's, you know, nothing would have evolved quite the same as if it hadn't, as if it hadn't come along. Um, I think things that there are trends that have been accelerated. You know, the younger generations do not feel the same way we do about public houses. Um, but <laughs> public houses, public houses would in decline or try finding it harder to attract a younger audience. You know, working really hard to get people in for the pandemic.
0: It's pandemic, mainly you obviously. and me that are
1: upset about no pubs being open. That's that's what we're saying, really. Yeah, it's you no know, transformed <laughs> life. Um, I hear one in three people are leaving London. I, I'm in London. I'm born in, I do I fully really understand why anybody would want to leave it. Um, but if you're told you don't need to come to your office anymore, um, and that's the reason you're in London, then then lots of people will be moving out for bigger gardens and a better quality of life. Yeah. What does that do to London over the next five to ten years as a place? Well, I presume it makes... Uh, affordable housing along with all the empty shops you know I don't see somebody's going to come up and say I've got this great idea I'm going to just start a department store where you can get your haberdashery and all your other goods under one roof the high street doesn't look the same sadly as I go through town centres and I think nothing's going to be quite the same um, prior to the lockdown we would never have considered working from home in the way we have been all of 2020 um, no, and going forwards yeah. You have to question why do I need to pay a landlord lots of money for premium premises in the West End? Um, if you read my landlords. Yeah. If you read our 2013 (laughs) business plan, it was entirely contingent on being in W one. Yeah. You know, because that's where artists expected to be and clients expected to find you. And I think we'll maintain a presence there, but it will be a shrunk overhead.
0: The commercial end of the business will still want that, you think, do
1: you? So the artist may may be located disparately, but... I don't even know if the commercial aspect will want that. Um, Mm. I'm there and we spent a lot of money on our premises, so it seems really silly to give up your screening rooms the way you like them and uh, and go and start, you know, invest loads of money somewhere else. Maybe that will be uh, something we do eventually. But, um, yeah, I think we're forever changed. I think some people have flourished. Working from home, some people have struggled mentally. Um, I think young ones who have flat shares and find it hard, you know, they've been able to come back into the office. Um, so we've got a dozen or so people in an office for 180 people um, working because it's better connection and um, we can go and do a day's work. I know that I've loved the days when I've gone in the office and come back home from doing a day's work. How old school. Yeah. Um, just because home is somewhere I think should be sort of sacrosanct space, your family and friends and peace and quiet or or, or for relaxation, you know, for doing the things you love. But uh, uh, we've all managed to make it work, um, thanks to the technologists and the engineers and the pipeline people who are the heroes of visual effects uh, earlier on this year and making it all work so quickly and efficiently. Um, I'd expected it to cost a lot more money to produce work and for our profit margins to take a big dip because of efficiencies. But actually they stood up uh, over the last few months as people have got used to it um, and what's required. So it's been very, very different. Um, I don't expect things to go back to February 2020 when this is all over. I am utterly convinced of one thing that it will be over, Someone said to me recently, "Do you know anyone who's died of Spanish flu?" And the answer is, "I don't." So this is slightly different, um, but I'm hoping it will become a distant memory. As you say, I I agree. I don't think um,
0: I don't think what when it's over, you know, whatever that looks like, it's we aren't going to be the same as we were before. Things will be changed irrevocably.
1: I think. Um, I think one of the big um, one of the big mistakes people have made, which is perfectly logical to think, is that. People will always want new content for television. Of course, they want new content for television, especially in this time of Amazon, Netflix, HBO Max, all the competition for 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 people. Um, mm. But that doesn't mean people want to pay five times what they were paying in February twenty twenty for new content. No, um, that doesn't mean uh, I've watched TV series I, that I'd missed on Netflix. I've gone back and watched some brilliant stuff from twenty twelve.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, and really enjoyed it. And I think I think when production resumes, it will just resume. I don't yeah. think it's going to resume, but be 10 times the amount of production for two years while they make up for the lost.
0: Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. That has been said, hasn't it? I've heard a few people say that. Well, that'll be yeah, 10 times as much work, that's work the around. the kind of impression uh, we're yeah. getting
1: talking to people. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think people have been laboured under the false illusion that we're all going to be fine because they'll always make films. I'm not so sure. You know, I'm not so sure when there's nowhere for you to show your film, mm. whether you'll make the same kind of film as you would. For a sixty foot screen and a sold out April Easter holiday James Bond audience.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the studio's appetite is to fund marquee releases like that. You know, Tenet, another example,
1: might be I might be. Reduced. We'll a, I don't think we'll live in a James Bondless world. He just might be not seventy mil James Bond, you know? Yeah. In yeah. Acapulco. He might be James Bond in the closed house of fraser <laughs> he might be my might
0: james bond uh, it's sort of uh morecambe bay or something you know somewhere yeah, slightly james less glamorous bond looking to buy some sheets <laughs> but can't find a department store. <laughs> that's probably uh, probably a good place to leave it i think um well thank you very much uh, i knew that would be an interesting conversation uh you're a reliable raconteur thank you very much um no, really interesting stuff and i think yeah, thanks a lot. I think people will find that interesting to listen to. So thanks for thanks for joining us, and um, I look My forward pleasure. to seeing you soon. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the topics or technology covered in this discussion, please don't hesitate to get in touch using the information provided below this link or ping us an email using info at escape-technology.com. Thanks, and see you next week.